Hi everybody, this is Marlene with Miami Ghost Chronicles Stories of the Supernatural. And I hope you enjoy this new show, whether you're viewing it on the internet or listening to a podcast version of the episode. I do want to thank you for being part of my audience. You can also find links to videos or podcasts on MiamiGhostChronicles.com as well as where you can submit your story about any eerie experiences you've had which I would love to hear about. Just go to the Submit Your Story tab. Please subscribe to our channel so that you receive notification of when we release a new show. And find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. This is where I usually live stream and where I give you a behind-the-scenes look at locations where new episodes are being filmed at. I also tell you about all the interesting guests that will be appearing soon on Stories of the Supernatural. I hope you enjoy the show, and I think you are all wonderful. Hi everybody, this is Marlene with Miami Ghost Chronicle Stories of the Supernatural. How are you all doing today? Today, I'm doing wonderful. And of course, one of the reasons is that I have such a fantastic guest. This gentleman's name is Robert L. Snow. And uh, Robert is an author of quite a few books. But besides that, he served for 38 years at the Indianapolis Police Department. And he retired in 2007 with the rank of captain. Uh, He has been a publishing writer for over 30 years with over 100 articles and short stories published in such magazines as Playboy Reader's Digest, The National Enquirer, and others. In addition, he has had 15 books published. Now, amongst all his books that look super interesting, one of the ones that I just can't wait to speak to him about is uh, one of his books called Portrait of a Past Life Skeptic, The True Story of Police Detectives Reincarnation. And as you know, Um, I'm a hypnotherapist. Uh, I've had a lot of experience with uh, past life regression. And of course, this subject to me uh, is, it's, it's like, it's still like a big question mark, uh, an open door. Uh, For all the answers we have, there's so many other questions that don't have any answers. But anyway, let me get uh, Robert on. How are you doing today, Robert? Fine, fine. Thank you for having me on your show. Uh, on the contrary, my pleasure. And Robert, even though we spoke briefly uh, before we started recording about your experience, I'm going to ask you what I ask all my guests was, obviously, you know, you had this experience later on as an adult where you discovered uh, a reincarnation. But before we get to that, did you ever have any uh, type of paranormal experience at all, either as a child or an adult? No, not a thing. Not it's a interesting, thing. interesting about writing this book. I didn't have a single thing for this book. Then a lot of really, I would almost say bizarre things happened to me while I was writing the book. Really? Interesting enough, once I wrote the book and got it finished, nothing happened after that. It, it, it was just, it was a, like it was just a, a phase when I was writing the book. They, I, I would have just some really, and as I'll talk, we'll talk about later, but some bizarre things happen. Really, I mean, so bizarre you can't really find an explanation for them. But again, it only happened when I was writing the book. Once the book was written and published, it stopped, and it hasn't had anything happened anything since. Well, le- how long were you writing the book? What how what was the length of time that you were having? It took, these- it took about a year. Okay. Most books, 
most books write take about a year to write. And once, okay. once you get a once you get a contract. Okay. So, and I'm, let's let's. I mean, you served obviously for many many years as a police officer. So, and we talked about that, like, uh, you know, as a police officer, you're trained to observe, and what you're interested in is facts, hard evidence. Like you said, this is also what's admissible if you go to court for any reason with a case. So, can you go back to how you ended up being hypnotized? Well, uh, actually, uh, I've been, actually, like you told you in the introduction, I'm a writer, and I've been mm-hmm. a writer for a lot of years. My way, my, in my bio needs to update. I have 18 books published Oh, okay. Now. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. Well, I know I haven't, I haven't updated my bio uh, online. I probably should. Okay. And uh, what was but it I, part I, of a I, research? Was that it? Were you researching a book, or how did, uh, how did that happen? No, no. But part of being a writer is you also have to be a reader. You yes. can't just sit and write. You have to read a lot. You have to read not just things in your genre, but in every in everything. Because this is the way you see when you read something. You see, boy, this writer really handled this real well. You want to see. Then you want to analyze writing. How did he or she do this? So mm-hmm. you'll do it to your own writing. So I read from all areas. So I belonged. I used to belong to a lot of different book clubs. Okay. Well, one, of the, one of the book clubs had a book called Coming Back by Dr. Raymond Moody. Yes, I'm more familiar it's with that. Not, yeah, yeah, it was seemed like kind of interesting books. I ordered it as part of the book club, and I sat down and read it. And it was a good, it was a real thing, kind of thin book. I read it all one night, matter of fact. And But it was an interesting book about he had a friend who was a psychologist who did past life regression, and she talked Dr. Moody, who had, he had done re- previous research in uh, near-death experiences. Mm-hmm. So she talked him into, into being regressed, and he went back to, I think, eight different lives, and he talks about the book, and it's very colorful and very interesting about the book, but he, these past lives she supposedly hypnotized and regressed him to. But at the end of the book, he really, when he asked him, when he tries to think what it was, he hedges, and he said he doesn't really know what this was. He wasn't really convinced that this is past life. He wasn't sure if it was just his imagination or subconscious mm-hmm. mind dredging up old movies and things he'd read. And that's right. basically how I, that's how I thought to read the book. I thought, yeah, this sounds fun, but it, it's not real. It's just your subconscious mind dredging up old memories and fiction and putting them together into a story. So right. I didn't think too much about it. I went on to the reading. Well, I was at a party. It was a police department party. My wife was a police detective also, and uh, she worked in child abuse. And there they're big. They're, they're, they worked at the Child Advocacy Center, which is the police, prosecutor, child protective surgery. But anyway, they had a big party, mm-hmm. a big Christmas, Christmas party. So I was there, and I was just making small talk with uh, the woman who's uh, worked department, a psychologist who worked at the police department. We were just making small talk about movies we'd seen, and then we talked about books we read. I remembered coming back, and I mentioned it to her that I had read this book about the psychologist and coming back, and she asked what I think. Well, I didn't know at the time that this, uh, this, the psychologist she used to pass like aggression and did that a lot. Okay. And so I, I, I basically told her I thought it was a lot of rubbish. I thought it was just, it was just fanciful, wishful thinking from people who don't want to think they die and, and, they, and then nothing happens. That people who, or people who want to blame their, pre, their troubles in their present life on a past life, telling us bad karma from past lives and this kind of thing. Right. I basically, I, man, and then and it's toward the end of the party, I've been drinking. I probably got a little obnoxious, to tell you the truth. And I, you know, I was really putting, putting down reincarnation, not realizing that she, she used it very regularly. Okay. Well, I, I, got, I think I got on her nerves a little bit because basically she dared me. So if you think it's so silly, try it. And you see what you think. And at first I said, no, I'm not doing this. I'm, that's silly. And finally got to the point, oh, you're scared. Now, you don't want to ask a man if or a police officer anybody they're scared. Of course they're going to say no. So anyway, anyway <laughs> I, 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 she, she finally gave me a number of 
friend of the regression therapist said, here, try it and see what you think. And I, somehow, I'm not sure why I did it, I agreed that I'd do it. But then the next day, you know, at, you, know you, you get more, you're more clear, you're sobered up, more clear headed. I thought, I'm not doing this, that's silly. But it seemed like then from then on, I would run into this lady, the psychologist, every day it seemed like. And every time I'd see her, she'd ask me, had you made the appointment? Have I made the appointment with her? <laughs> And every day I'd have some other, you know, make some excuse about, oh, I've been to see you, got meetings, you know. But every time, you know, and, and, and I, I swear, I never saw this woman once every six months before this. Sitting back after, I saw her every day. It's like I'd see her in the hallway and say, God, there she is, you know. I know I'm about to make some other excuse. So finally, I just, finally, I got tired of it, and I said, well, and then I, I was kind of irritated about it and kind of tired. So I thought, I'm just going to make an appointment. I'm going to go there. I'm going to cooperate 100% with this woman, that, that her, the person she referred me to. And I'm not sure how much baloney this soul is, how this is stupid, it doesn't work. Uh, so I ended up calling a lady, it was uh, Dr. Mary Ellen Griffith. Uh, she's also a psychologist, and I made the appointment. So I thought, so I thought, well, and I, I, I asked her if I could bring a tape recorder along. Because I want the recorder to be able to show the, the police department psychologist how this is all, see, I did it, nothing happened, it's stupid. It's just all, the whole thing's stupid. So I, so I went, that's, how, that's basically how I got talked into doing past life regression. Oh boy. Well, anyway, after I got, I got, I need to say I was a little bit nervous because the whole thing. Was, <laughs> yeah. Well, the thing is, we had we had worked with we had worked with the police department had worked with hypnosis before this. Well, I knew what hypnosis was. We had worked with it before, and we really hadn't had good good experiences with it. What what we used it for is, is at the time they were hypnotizing people, women who had psychological problems, mm-hmm. and the psychologist would. Mostly take them back to the past in this life, not in their past life. Right. And they, they would remember being molested or being abused. Right. And, but unfortunately, in a number of cases, this wasn't what happened. What happened was a psychologist guided them into saying these things. Yeah, that, yeah, that's a problem. That is a problem, yeah. We had one to celebrate cases. Her, this person, this lady's dad was a minister, and she claimed she remembered him. Holding her, her mom holding her down when her dad raped her. Wow. And how she had had she'd had an abortion because she got pregnant by her dad and all. Wow. And, and, it, and it, it all sounded realistic. Her dad got fired from the church and what have you. So anyway, they finally took her to the doctor, examined her, and she was still a virgin. Wow. Yeah. So that's one of those cases where they, you know that hypnosis. It wasn't. Yeah. 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 So yes. Anyway, so so need to say we looked at hypnosis with a very, I don't know. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, yeah but the, the, yeah, right. The, it's only also as good as a hypnotherapist. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I agree with you. So I went to see Dr. Griffin. She was a very nice lady, very nice, very gracious. She asked me what I, you know, if I had any problems I would work on. I told her, no, I just, interesting, to try it. She didn't have any problem with that. So we, I basically sat down, we, we talked for a little bit. And she told me, she said, close your eyes. So I closed my eyes and we started talking. She asked me to tell her something about my college graduation. So okay. I told her my college graduation. She asked me to tell her about something that happened in high school, you know, in grade school. And, you know, I, I mean, I could see what she was doing, you know. I, I thought at the time that she was sure would be, very, be a very good interrogator because I could anticipate what her next question is going to be. And you don't believe me as an interrogator. You don't want the person to ever be able to anticipate what the next question could be. But I could see she would yeah. take me further, further back in, in the, in the, into my life. Okay. But, but again, I had tape recorder going and I was cooperating. I said I was I was excited. I was going to do everything she asked me to do so I could show the, the department, police department psychologist how silly it was. So anyway, finally we, should, we go back further and further back in life. And she wanted to ask about what, you know, got to have the, by her very earliest memory and this type of thing. 
So then finally she said, okay. She said, no. She says, I'm sitting with my eyes closed. And she said, okay, I want you to picture a balloon. Now I was sitting there, and the, the light was coming in the window to my right. And I could see a purple blob, you know, with the light coming through my eyes. And I thought, yeah, I can see a, a purple balloon. You know, I'm trying to pay it again. I said, I knew it's just a light coming through the window. So anyway, she tells me, well, get into the balloon. And said, we're going to take off. So I'm trying, I'm still, I'm, I'm cooperating. I'm trying to be 100% cooperative so I could tell, so I can show the person. So I said, well, I'm cooperating. I'm in the balloon. She said, okay, then come on, we're going to go up. Okay, so we're going, because you said we're going to go. You're going to imagine yourself taking off. So I'm trying to imagine taking off. So she was talking about we're traveling along, traveling along, and all this. She said, okay. She says, do you see the lights down below? Now, interesting enough, out of the bottom of my eyes, I could see what looked like little points of light. Now, I, I assume it's just a reflection off the floor at the moment. I assume that's all it was, but I could see the little points of light down the bottom of my eyes. But again, I, you know, I, I figured it had to be a reflection off the floor. So anyway, she said, okay. She says, do you see the, the lights down below? And I said, yeah. She says, well, let's take the balloon down. She said, take the balloon down. Well, nothing happened. She said, just go ahead and land. Well, nothing happened. But I'm, again, I'm thinking, this is, her, this is her daydream, not mine. I'm uh, not going to make anything happen that I don't see really happen. I'm not going to imagine something right. just for her to her benefit. So anyway, we, she, she asked me to land about five or six times. And nothing nothing happened. So finally, she said, okay. She said, reach up. There's a control above you. Reach up and pull it. It'll take the balloon down. So we went through this another half dozen times. And again, <laughs> nothing happened. Again, again I wasn't going to imagine anything or do anything other than other, what I really saw or thing. So finally. I was surprised. She was a very, very patient woman because we went through this at least a dozen times and she didn't seem to at least slice bit miffed. So finally she told me, she said, okay, she says, I'll tell you what, look up, see if you can imagine a mountain in your mind. So I'm trying to imagine a mountain. And, I, and then I thought, okay, I can imagine a mountain. She said, okay, we're going to take the balloon to a mountain. Now I said, I've been sitting here probably by this time 20 minutes there. Uh-huh. She okay. had, the hard, had the hardest couch I have ever sat on. <laughs> I don't think she wanted her patients to stay more than an hour because you couldn't on this couch. And I'm really, I'm uncomfortable. I'm really uncomfortable. I'm in a little bit of pain. I'm sitting on this couch along my hands. I, I haven't moved. in my hands on the lamp. So anyway, she said, okay, imagine landing a mountain. And some reason, in my mind, I could actually see a balloon landing on a mountain. I wasn't trying to do this, but I could just see it. I thought, well, okay, I can see the land. She said, okay, do you see a cabin there? So I tried to imagine a cabin there. And sure enough, I could see a log cabin there. But interestingly enough, when I saw it, the logs are going vertical rather than horizontal. Wow. And I had, and I had a reader later, right, right, right later on, tell me that was the French way of building log cabins. Okay. Anyway, she said, now go into the cabin and go inside and see what you see. Well, I didn't see anything. Again, you know, she says, what do you see? Well, I didn't see anything. Again, this is her daydream. So I'm, I'm, I don't see anything. She said, okay, now imagine a big meal. So I'm still trying to cooperate. Thinking, I'm thinking to myself, what an idiot I am for doing this. I'm thinking, I must be a real idiot. You know, I've got myself talking and doing this, and I'm, I'm sitting there feeling really silly, but I'm still trying to cooperate. She said, okay. She said, a picture of a meal, and we pictured a meal. She said, okay, so I'm going to take you out. Now, I want you to, we're going to go down to a valley. She says, there's some steps. I'm going to count them. Okay. So we start, she started this 10, this, this real long, nine, you know, it's like, kind of like mm-hmm. when you stage yeah, backwards, you know, thinking, yeah. Thinking, oh, God, this is, I thought, oh, God, this is like a stage hypnotist. So, you know, you're getting very sleepy. I'm just, I'm just, I'm having, I'm taking all my willpower and I open my eyes and say, this is stupid, let's quit this. But I didn't. But I, I still wanted to prove to the police department psychology how stupid this all was. So I'm, 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 she's counting. I'm walking down the steps of the valley. But when she, funny enough, when she got to one, something really bizarre happened. Okay. All of a sudden, all of a sudden I was at the valley. Now it wasn't, I wasn't seeing this valley in my mind. I wasn't imagining this valley. 
I was in a valley. Now I knew I was still sitting in the, in the, her office because I could feel the couch. I could feel my, my my buttocks had gone to sleep for some hour or eight from sitting on the couch. My mm-hmm. hands were. But at the same time, I was in a valley, and it was so vivid and clear. I could see leaves blowing on the trees, and interesting, I could feel that breeze blowing in my face. Mm-hmm. I assumed it was just the air conditioning in her office, but I could feel a breeze, and I could I could look at things. I could see fine detail. I could see the veins and the leaves on bushes next to me. It, it was. I mean, now I knew at the moment what happened. I mean, I wasn't real stupid. I figured out I had been hypnotized. I, I tell you, interesting enough, before I went there, I didn't think it could happen. I thought I was too strong-willed. I didn't think I could mm-hmm. be hypnotized. Really did. But I knew at that moment. I knew what happened. I said, Bob, this is hypnosis. You've been hypnotized. And it, tell you the truth, you know, it was kind of like it was kind of like when you go to Disney World or some of these amusement parks. They have some really great rides, and they're very realistic. But you know, they're not real. It's just exactly. Hypnosis. And that's what I thought this was. This is not real. It's hypnosis, and you've been hypnotized. But it was still, it was kind of fantastic. It was kind of like the coolest ride you ever seen in a amusement park. Uh-huh. So I want, I, I kind of want to go along with it because I thought this is really cool. So anyway, so I'm in this valley and I'm walking along, and I can feel a breeze and I can see the leaves. I can, it's, it's, it was high summer, and I'm looking around. There's a little brook, like water running to my right there, and she said, "Well, look down, describe what you have on." I looked down, and I could see two bare, hairy legs. And, and I was wearing some kind of very dirty, matted fur. And I was carrying a tree limb in my, in my, in my I think it's my left hand. It was a big, a big piece of a tree limb. Now, I, you know, I know what came in. Everybody seen movies and books. You know what a caveman looks like. Mm-hmm. And, I, and, I, and I knew what this was. I thought, oh, God, Bob, you know, you think you're, you know, you look like you're thinking Tarzan. Uh-huh. So I'm, descri- I'm describing it to her and everything. And then another, something else, as I'm walking along, I'm describing myself to her, what I'm wearing and where, where I'm at. And then another bizarre thing happened. Suddenly, it was like there was a door to back my mind open, and a little facts started jumping out. Facts I didn't know. As Bob Snow, as I didn't know him, but this person I was in did know him. Uh-huh. I said, I said, I live here. I didn't, it's funny, I started saying things before I knew I was going to say them. I mean, usually, you know, when you say things, you get a half second to realize what you're going to say before you say Right, exactly. I, just started, I started spilling words out before I was going to say them. After I live here, I said, there's a cave up on the hill. It's where I live. I pointed. I pointed up that way, and I thought. I remember thinking, "Sorry, where'd that come from?" I didn't. I did because I wasn't meant to. Me didn't mean to say it. So, in other words, you it. were re- 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 retelling the story in first person, as yeah, in exactly. I. Exactly. Again, I, 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 I still figured just a hip, a hip, you know, the, the hypnotism is all. But mm-hmm. it was. It was still. Kind of, it was kind of bizarre. She said, "Okay." She said, "Go to go to where you live." Now, again, rather than walking there, just it was just like a moment of gray, a gray fog. And I was at the cave entrance. But the funny part of the cave entrance, when I started to step in, the fellow who lived there was not very hygienic. And it was, uh, I had this awful, awful smell. When I walked when I, when I walked in the cave, it was this awful, unhygienic smell. In this, it was just oh, almost gaggy for a second. You could smell. He did not live clean. He did, he did not have a clean cave. He did not live. It was really a nasty smell. So anyway, we went on into the into the cave. And I, you know, she, we just, I described it to her. She said, okay. So I want you to go to your death. She said, go to your death and tell me what you see. Well, again, there's a moment or two of great fog. And all of a sudden, I'm not inside the guy's body. I'm, I'm floating above it. I'm about 10 feet above him. Mm-hmm. He's laying on the floor. He's a little skinny little man, and he's huddled up under, under some fur. And he's just hacking and coughing, something terrible. You can see he's every time he coughed, it really hurt. He was saying he was dying. Obviously, he was dying. Mm-hmm. So I told her that. She said, okay. She says, go, go outside the cave. And this time I'm not walking. I'm floating. I'm floating about 10 feet above. Okay. And I go outside the cave, and she said, 
And again, before I, before I could say, before she asked me anything, I say anything, all of a sudden I just blurred out. I said, this was a bad life. I said, I didn't have anyone this life. This was a bad life. I had nobody. I was all by myself. I had no one. Mm-hmm. She said, okay. She said, look up, Bob. Do you see a light? I looked up, and sure enough, there's a big light above the valley. She said, go into the light. I said, okie dokie. You know, again, <laughs> I think this is like an amusement park ride. It's, it's, uh-huh. It's really so I, So I go, she said, now, I want you to go to a life when you really, when you had someone, when there was someone in your life. So, okay. So I go in, I go into the, I go into the light. And there's all four or five seconds, again, a gray fog. And all of a sudden, I see myself, I'm on a city street. But it's not from today, because I can see there's gas lights and horse-drawn carriages. Mm-hmm. And I look, I'm looking around and figuring it's probably the late 1800s. It okay. But the interesting part was, it was a summer day, and I could feel the sun beating down real hard on me. Now, I'm inside of a closed office, but I could feel it. I could feel the heat coming down on me. Okay. So I'm walking along. And I'm describing the scene to, to Dr. Griffith. I'm, it's a city street. Looks like you know, I can see gas lights and I can see horse-drawn carriages. And he says, okay. He says, what are you doing? I said, I'm going to meet someone. And so she said, well, go ahead. To meet the, go meet the person. So there's a, a beautiful blonde lady in a red dress. And her and I, and I meet her, and we walk down to a outdoor cafe. Okay. And she, she asked what, what, what we ordered. And I told her I ordered a glass of wine. And my, the, my companion ordered some kind of special water. So we, we talked about this, and she said, you know, go, to, go five years ahead. So I went to the five years. And I see myself staying in an apartment hallway, and I'm arguing with a woman about money. We're having this real vigorous argument. And I just storm, storm away, and I walk into this other room, and it's an artist studio. It's a room that's one wall is solid windows. One wall is solid windows. There's okay. a big skylight, a skylight uh-huh. on top. I'm looking around, and there's dozens and dozens of paintings hanging everywhere. And again, like with the, like with the caveman, I suddenly realized, not, I didn't realize, but my, the person I was in realized, that's, that was my job. I was an artist. Uh-huh. I, I, I painted for a living. And so, anyway, so we, so we went through we went through this this life, and she said, fine. He said, go to your death. I said, okay. I said, go to your death. I went to, I, I, I began a couple minutes of fog, and I went to my death. And I saw myself rising. Up on my body, and I'm through, this, through the roof of this building. And now, I, you know, everybody, everybody's seen ghost movies on TV. That's what ghosts do. I knew what this was. This is just a ghost movie I'd seen sometime. Now, I, I come up out of the, out of the, up through the building, and I looked around. I was in a huge city. There were lights for miles and miles in all directions. Now, the interesting part is people think when you're hypnosis, you're under control of the hypnosis. You know, they see these stage shows. That they right. Look like, like chickens. That's not true. Under hypnosis, you still know exactly what's going on. What's yes, going you do. Around. And you aim have you have free will. Because Doctor Griffith said, "Okay, go into the light," but I didn't. I said, "I said I saw myself flying through some woods. I could tell it was late fall because it was a cold, real cold, cold guy, cold chilly night. But the trees still had their leaves. Mm-hmm. So anyway, she kept saying, "Go into the light," and I do it, and I wouldn't do it. Instead, I went to this building, and this it was like a big mansion. Okay. I look in the window. I look in the window on the second or third floor, and there's a room, and there's a big fire in the fireplace. And above, above the fireplace, it's one of my paintings. It's a still life. And I told Dr. Griffin, no, I don't want to go yet. I want to see one of my paintings before I go. And so I, I, I described the painting to her, the still life painting to her. And then, and then I went, and then I finally went to the light, which I thought was kind of interesting. Because she kept telling me about half time time to go to the light, and I wouldn't do it. But she goes, again, I thought it was interesting that people think you have complete control. But you're really in hypnosis. You mm-hmm. can control what you want to do. Yes, so anyway, exactly. So then she said to me, she says, okay, now I want you to go to the life you live as a woman. And I remember thinking to myself then, laughing, thinking, yeah, that's going to happen. <laughs> we'll do a life as a woman. But anyway, so there was 
just four or five minutes, uh, four or five seconds of gray fog, and then sure enough, I'm in, a, I'm in, a, I'm in a, it's actually a young girl. I'm in a young girl's body. Okay. And again, again, it was, this was a, this was one, this was a thing like the caveman. This was a, a life back in ancient Greece, and mm-hmm. nothing could, you know, nothing could be really be verified about it. Mm-hmm. But here's enough. Here's enough. And this one, I saw a person in this life who I know, who I know in my present life. Okay. I, I saw my stepdaughter. But here's enough. She was the age then she was when her mother and I got married, not the age she was when I did the regression. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I went through this life as a, as a Greek woman. And, and, and actually, I worked at a temple as a young girl. And I got, and, I, and, then, and then I got, the thing about, there was a requirement that at the temple, you had to be a virgin to work at this temple. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, I had a little girl, which was my stepdaughter. Needless to say, that kind of, that kind of, they put me out of the temple and gave me away to a, to a man. And so anyway, so I go to live with this man and he dies real soon afterwards. So now I'm here, I'm a woman in ancient Greece with a young girl. And so I take my daughter back to the temple and give her away. Got to give her to the temple to have to keep, because I know how much easier my life would be if I didn't have a little girl hanging on me. Mm-hmm. And the interesting part about the regression was, is I felt this tremendous guilt. I, I was trying to explain to Dr. Griffin how this was a really a good thing I was doing. It wasn't a bad thing to abandon my daughter. That was really a good thing. Knowing all my time, my life, in my mind, I had this tremendous guilt about okay. leaving, about leaving her there. Okay. But I did. I left there and took, I took off, and I went to a a village by 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 a big body of water, and ended up drowning. That's how I died. Cause she took me to my death. Okay. And the interesting part about the drowning, I could taste salt water. Yes. As, I, as I'm drowning, I could actually taste salt in my in my throat. So anyway, she so after this story is over, she said, "Okay, Bob, now I want you to go to the most recent life you lived. I want you to go to the life you were before you were Bob Snow." So I again, there's four or five seconds of great fog. And suddenly, I'm back in the artist body. I knew who it was. I'm back into the artist body again. Okay. But I'm in a I'm in my studio and I'm painting a portrait. But interesting enough, it's a portrait of a hunchback woman. Okay. She's got, she got a, she's got a very prominent hunch on her, her back. Very prominent, very prominent hunchback. And I'm just finishing the portrait. I, mean, I the interesting part was I could this this the regression was so vivid I could see every single brush. This painting, every every brushstroke, and I was just finishing the painting up, and then so anyway, so then I went to a couple other scenes in this in this life as an as an artist, and you know, because Dr. Griffith always said, "Well, oh, what happened?" She say, "Go five years forward, go five years forward." So one of these times, just before she said, actually she said, "Go five years forward," and I was in the gray fog. Also, I had this emotion. Well, I mean, I felt I felt like I wanted to cry. Okay. I said, "That's it. She died." They said she died. The doctor said she died of a blood clot. And I had no idea who I was talking about. I didn't okay. know who this woman was. But I knew whoever she was, she was a very, very important woman to this artist. Because, okay. And I, I, I thought, I remember thinking to myself how silly this was. I actually felt like I wanted to cry. And I had no idea what I was talking right. about. Right. The emotion but was there. At that moment, after I said that, my recorder I brought along clicked off. I opened my eyes. And that was it. And the regression was over. And, and now I'm feeling really kind of foolish, you know. Now, you know, I went, there, I went there, I went there so sure of myself about uh-huh. how, how stupid all this stuff was. Now nothing's going to happen. I didn't think I could hypnotize. And now I, 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 I was tell you, I was flustered because not because you know because of the only mainly because it was so vivid. I mean, the the regression just wasn't you know clear. It was it was as clear as any reality I'd ever seen. 
Mm-hmm. But now, Doc Griffiths tell me about, have you seen anything that this life would apply to yours and all this? And I couldn't think of it. I'm, I'm just too flushed at the moment. I had no idea what had just happened. And I just mumbled something to her about this, you know, too soon. I, and I, I wanted to get out of there, to tell you the truth. I, I, had, I had no idea what happened. Because, okay. you know, in, 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 my, in life, especially like being a police officer, you're trained to handle situations. You've got training, you've got experience on how to handle things. Well, I had no training or experience on how to handle this. Oh. I, did, well, I didn't know what had just happened. And so I, I fumbled, mumbled some excuse to her before I got out of there, and I went and sat in my car. And I, I took my car probably for maybe 20 minutes or so afterward, trying to think, what just happened? Not because of the incident itself, but just how vivid it It didn't seem like made-up stories, because what I thought it would be, if you told anything, it'd be your subconscious mind dressing. And, right, and, and this wasn't what you had been expecting to experience no, at, at all? all. And, no, no, it wasn't expecting expect at all, because it was so, so incredibly vivid. And I kept trying to figure out what could this have been. I, I can't imagine what this could be. So I sat there for about 20 minutes trying to, and I find just that, Bob, it's, again, this is simply a hypnosis. And those were, these were just memories from your life. Somewhere you've seen a, a, you've seen a picture of the hunchback, you've seen this painting, you've seen the painting, maybe the still life over the fireplace. You're dredging up these memories and reordering them into a story to make the psychologist happy. So all you did. That's why I tried to convince myself. Mm-hmm. So I went home and tried to convince myself of that. But the, the day, the week, days and weeks following, I just simply couldn't. I, I could not stop thinking about this, about this regression. It was just so vivid. And actually, for the first couple of years after regression, if I closed my eyes, I could still see the painting. I could see the scenes clear, still vivid. Yes. I could still see every brushstroke that painting for the first couple of years after the regression. And anyway, and I couldn't stop thinking about it. I would think about it probably 50 times a day. Wow. And I would, then I started dreaming about it. And it started to bother me because as a police officer, I've seen people who have obsessions. Uh-huh. And believe me, serious obsessions seldom turn out well for people. If yes. you, allow yourself, you allow yourself to be captured and controlled by an obsession, it usually ends up bad for you. Mm-hmm. I, I knew I had to do something. I, I finally realized I had to do something about this. But I could not stop thinking about it. I mean, every single day I'd think about it constantly. So I said, what I need to do. You need to find one of these two paintings. I mean, how many paintings of a hunchback woman could there be? Come on. That should be easy. easy. You know, the still life might be a little harder, but I figured the hunchback woman would be easy to find. I I figured if I could find one of these paintings, Mm -hmm. then I would would find who who painted when it's been exhibited. It all come to me. Oh, yeah, Bob, you saw that, you know, four years ago. And that's, and again, you read a little about the artist, and that's where it's all come from. Mm -hmm. So my... So my, so my plan, now this was in 1992. This was for the internet. Okay. So you, just, you couldn't get online and type a search engine and say, right. you know, hunch, hunchback woman painting. Back then it was legwork. Yeah, there. I had to go to the library. So I went to the NF Public Library, and I thought I'd just start looking through their, out of my lunch hour, I'd start looking through the art books, and sure enough, I'll find, I'll find one or two paintings. That, that was still like. I didn't realize that the NF Public Library had hundreds, hundreds of really? Well, oh, I know yeah. that at some points in and like in Italy or some places, hunchbacks were considered like good luck, but I didn't realize like what you're saying that there's a lot of pictures as far as yeah. paintings. Yeah, I figured how, how hard could it be to find it? But again, in these days, there was no search engines. You had to get yeah. to Lake and go through the books yourself. So anyway, so I started I started going through it. I made a, I, what did I, I took a, a yellow a pad and I started writing down the books I looked through to keep myself from doubling back. And I went through every, it took me months, but I went through every single book at the public library, every art book. Didn't find wow. it. Yeah, and then that started bugging me a little bit. I thought, wait a minute now, Bob. You couldn't just dream this up. You had to have seen it somewhere. And so, so what I started doing, I started, I started going around, around the around local area, 
talking to art dealers and say, okay. you know, I figured, why do you talk to them? And I found something interesting this time. In 1992, there was no registry of paintings anywhere. In other words, you couldn't say, I want this painting. There was nowhere. And like nowadays, you could. You could get on the internet and find it. Exactly. In those days, the only thing you, had, you could do was to start calling art dealers and say, do you know where this painting's at? Have you seen this painting? Wow. And so I, I visited old probably two dozen art galleries. And again, no one had heard or seen the painting or knew about it. And so, and I, and so, then I then I decided, well, you know, maybe I need to, do, you know, do some uh, investigation of what happened. What happened was under hypnosis. So I went to a New Age bookstore, in, in, undercover, needless to say, and and, and bought, a, bought a couple books on on past life regressions. Uh huh. what happened. And matter of fact, I even tried self hypnosis, which, by the way, is much more much much more difficult than people think it is. Yeah, it is. Yeah, much much more difficult because I. I had I read a number of uh, scripts for doing this, which mm-hmm. were seemed, seemed very similar to Dr. Griffith. Dr. Griffith was big into imagery. You know, tell me this. You know what? Tell mm-hmm. me all about this. Very much imagery. And I did, and I and I tried it all probably a dozen times. It was very difficult to get yourself into that. But t- only twice I could feel myself get ready to go. You know, just started going into the state I had been in Dr. Griffith's office. But it only lasted maybe a couple of seconds. Okay. And both times I saw the number one nine one seven. Then, like a balloon popping, I'd be out. Twice happened. I'd see the number one nine one. Now, I didn't know if that was an address, number, money, or what it was. Okay. That's one thing I could do. So finally, in desperation, I even went back to Dr. Griffith for a second session. I thought maybe if I went back, uh-huh. I could I could go back to Art's life and get some kind of reference to where I knew this information from. So I went back and actually had a second session with her. Now, again, she took me back to some interesting past lives. But I couldn't get to the other slide. Every time she tried to get to the other slide, nothing had happened. She tried to get me to go to it. Nothing. And I went to some other lives, but never. Every time I went to the artist, nothing happened. And we we're done. She says, "Well, that's because you know everything you need to know." Now, at the moment, I didn't think so. It turned out she was right. At the moment, I didn't really think so. I thought, "Well, that doesn't help a bit. <laughs> doesn't help a bit." Yeah. <laughs> so, so anyway, now I was in charge. I was a captain of the Tennessee Police Department. I was in charge of homicide for a number of years. Now, in Indianapolis, when I was in charge of homicide, we had an 83% clearance rate, which is very good. We mm-hmm. solved 83% of murders. That still means that 17% of the murders every year go unsolved. Okay. And you have to, what you do with it, you put them on the shelf. And you don't just get rid of them. You just keep them in case new evidence would come up. But they're, right. basically, they're, basically, they're, basically, they're basically come cold cases. Right. And I, and I assume that's what was going to happen with this. I thought, Bob, you, there's not, what else can you do? There's nothing else you can do. Let it go. Let the case go. Don't, you know, don't worry about it. I mean, you've tried everything you do. Put it on the shelf. Now, if new evidence would come up, you could reopen the case. You know, it's not right. it's not closed, but it's it's deactivated. So anyway, mm-hmm. that's why I said I said don't think about it no more. I'm not going to do anything. Of course, that didn't work very long. I mean, I kept still kept thinking about it all the time, regardless of what I did. But anyway, a couple months after this, it was going toward my, my wife's anniversary, and she wanted she wanted to take a trip somewhere on her anniversary, somewhere we knew that was been. So one day she called me at work and she says, "What do you think about New Orleans?" Well, that's not like fun. I've never been to New Orleans, neither she. And it was springtime. We could, we were married in the last of April. I thought, well, that'd be great. We'll go to New Orleans and last of April be kind of a fun vacation. Mm-hmm. So we did. We, we went to New Orleans and we spent the we spent a week there. We did all the all the. She's a big history buff, so we did a lot of historical stuff around there. And we went to Bourbon Street at nighttime. You know, heard the heard the bands and did some did some drinking and all that. Anyway, the last day we were there, our plane didn't leave till the evening, so we had a whole day there. With you know, our plane left. So I said, I suggested one minute, one window shopping in the French Quarter. Because okay. we had gone, we had gone down there every night to what to go to the bars to see the bands, and it was all kind of little cool stores. 
in there, but they were all closed time we went down in the evening. So we decided to go window shopping. So we went window shopping in various stores. We never have to, you know, play various places, antique stores and historic memorabilia stores. Anyway, we finally got to Royal Street. Royal Street, and uh, this was 1992 still, or that, our first part, actually, first part of 93. Uh, we went down to Royal Street with all art galleries. Okay. Oak Street, that, this time was art galleries. So we started going through the art galleries. And, oh, yeah, they had some beautiful paintings, some of these, some really, I mean, very expensive, too, very beautiful paintings. Uh-huh. So we started walking along, going one art gallery after another. We started, and I noticed as we walked on the street, the galleries are getting smaller and the paintings more obscure. So we finally got down to the end of Royal Street. There was a little small art gallery. It was two floor. Walked in. It said modern art upstairs. Now I've never been a fan of modern art. I've never, I don't, I never have. I was like, you know, more traditional mm-hmm. art. So my wife is though. She was, so she walked upstairs to see it. And I started walking along the wall, just look at the paintings. I didn't recognize any paintings or I never heard of any of the artists. I'm not an art historian, so I don't know that much about it, but I never heard of any of the artists. So I'm walking along and I'm getting to the corner and there's a portrait on the easel there. And I'm walking by and I give it a glance and it's like I ran into a glass wall. I turn around and it's the portrait of the hunchback wall. Oh, you're kidding me. Now, you know, as a police officer, I've been in lots of I've been in lots of scary situations. Oh. I've been I've been in scary situations where I'm i I'm scared. I mean I'm scared you're going after people who have killed people, people hurt people. But you know, but I have never been as scared as I was when I saw that. You because, What are the odds? I, yeah, that's that was the point. That was the whole point. Come on. Now I've hunted for months for this painting. Uh huh. And, and, and I'm thinking, you know, what's the odds, Bob? You could look all these months for this painting, right? And all of a sudden, just stumble onto by accident or otherwise. No, no. So I can't, I'm, I'm staring at this painting, and I'm thinking, no, no, Bob. You want this? This looks like the painting. This is close. It's not the painting. It's not it. So I closed my eyes, and I told you during the first couple years, I could still see him. And I closed my eyes, and I could see the painting I was painting, and open my eyes. Uh huh. And I really said. I probably stood there five minutes, and I was thinking, you know, I'm probably not here. I'm probably in a nursing home somewhere. I'm slobbering on myself <laughs> in a nursing home. Well, you really, you got your, I mean, I'm desperate. I'm desperate looking for, I'm looking for an explanation for this. Come on, these things, these things happen on movies and books. They happen <laughs> in the X-Files. They don't happen to real people. Come on, things like this do not, do not happen to real people. They happen, like I said, in movies and science fiction books. Oh, they don't my happen, God. You know, what, what's, the, what's the chances this could happen? What's the odds? Because let me tell you something. Police officers, we don't believe in coincidences because – we so often, very often, find that any coincidence you run into an investigation is not a coincidence. Right. It's something someone made to happen, want to look like a coincidence. Mm-hmm. But again, they, that thought was scary because you're thinking, who could make this happen? Right. Anyway, you're in another I'm, city. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, 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 I'm sort of trying to, I'm just grasping. For, come on, there's got to be some way to explain this. How do I explain stumbling on this painting in, in a city a thousand miles from my home? You know, and, and, and what's the odds I could just imagine a painting and an identical one show up? It's not. The odds are way too much. So anyway, I'm looking at this painting for probably five minutes. I'm, I'm closing my eyes and I can see myself painting. Oh, open. my yep. God. Yep. It's a, I mean, I mean, there's no way to say I'm still wondering. Maybe I've had a stroke, Bob. You're in a hospital bed somewhere. <laughs> you know, you just think, because, again, you got to get your, I'm just grasping for a rational explanation with this. Anyway, I was there for probably five minutes during the painting. So finally, I guess when the salesman said, I don't, you know. He came over and said, I bet you're taking a hindsight look over your fireplace. <laughs> and you're like, you have no idea. I don't want, I don't know over my fireplace. So anyway, I, I kind of snapped back to reality and I said, you know, I don't recognize the artist. Who is the artist? He said, well, come here. I got a little bio one. So he took over the desk and got this bio out. It was J, uh, J. Carol Beckwith. Now, you know, now I looked at the, looked at the uh, thing. The first thing I saw was his date of birth and death. It was 1852 to 1970. 
There's your one nine one seven. And it'd be you know again. My my heart stumping, my heart stumping in my chest, and I got electricity running on my arms. And I'm starting to read. I'm reading the bio, and it's a real short little bio, maybe you know maybe four or five sentences. But I recognize four of the four of the things I'd said during your aggression in his bio. And you know, and I'm thinking, you know, I'm I'm still I'm grasping. I'm really grasping for some kind of situation. But anyway, I wrote that information down because I figured, well, now I can reopen this case. I back to Annapolis. I can I can look up Beckwith. I can check him out. I can find out where I know about him from this light. Now this finding the finding this painting is really bizarre. Really bizarre. It is. But, it but is. I figured if I could if I could find how I had known Beckwith from this life, that would that would that would that wouldn't explain everything, but it have to be more rational. That you know, it's not this is not a supernatural past life thing. This is a now thing. Now but you know you think what's the odds of him finding you and I kept I was trying to logic tell myself, but look at this yes. way. People people win Powerball and the odds are one hundred and uh-huh. one hundred and three hundred million. And that's what the odds of me find that painting. I figure but but people do win the that's Powerball. incredible. Yeah, and I think, well, I'm, not, I'm trying to rationalize myself. Bob, this is an incredible thing to happen. But incredible things happen. They do happen. People win Powerball. It's a one three hundred million chance. So that's why I'm going to go back to Annapolis, and I will research back then. So I come back to Annapolis. I go down to the next day I'm down to the library. And I find out, interestingly enough, there is practically no information about back with. There is no books about him, no magazine article about him. The only thing you find it's in a very large book by American authors. There'll be two or three sentences about him, basically saying he was a portrait painter who lived who lived in New York City in the late 1800s, early 1900s, painted port, mostly portraits. There's nothing, nothing else. I mean, there's just practically no information on him. I couldn't believe. It. I said, "Come on!" I told the librarian, "There's got to be more than this." And she said, "Well, I'll tell you what." Why don't you go up to the art museum library? They have a much better reference library of artists than we do. Okay. So I, I, good idea. So I went up, and it's on the north side of Annapolis, so I drove up there. And, went to the art, and their librarian was able to find a little more about him. Not much more, but a little bit more. But interesting enough, the stuff she found, I found, I think I found five more little confirmations of things I'd said. I, I remember saying that. I remember saying that. And this is, you know, this it's one of these things. You can't, what I was starting to look for at the last there, I was starting to look for, let's find one thing. I had said that was wrong. For example, I, Dr. Griffin asked me, what do you regret about your life? And I said, I regret that we didn't have children because my wife couldn't have children. And I thought, well, if Beckwith had children, then the whole thing's goofy. This, not, this is not a real memory because you remember having children. Sure to God, you remember having children, you know. Right. Uh, and I said, for example, I saw myself ordering wine at the uh, restaurant. Now, I was under the impression that men in the late 1800s drink whiskey. They, if they drink it, not men, very men drink wine. Or if he's a teetotaler, I thought, well, then... It's right. a bull. It's all. You know, it's all some kind of rubbish. Yeah. You know, so, so I kept looking for the disturbing fact, but I, instead, so far I'd found ten, like ten different facts that all were exactly what I'd said. But interesting enough, when I was up to, when I was up to the library. She said, "Oh, by the way, so we have a uh, a program from an art exhibit he held was held here of his work in Annapolis." And I thought, "Hot dog!" <laughs> I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. Unfortunately, it was in 1911. Oh. The last exhibition, yeah. I, for a moment, I thought I had it solved. But anyway, I noticed that one, that one of the references they found back was in a book about John Sargent, because, again, they were close friends. Or uh-huh. At the bottom is a footnote. So this information came from the diaries of J. Carroll Beckwith, now on now at the National Academy of Design, New York City. So that's how I found about the diary. So I knew that he had a diary. Okay. And also it said, also it said some of the information came from an unpublished autobiography of Beckwith that he'd written. I thought, hot dog, Bob, this is what you got to do. You got to get a hold of the, get a hold of those 
and you maybe you some way you'll be able to. What I was tell you what I was looking for. I wasn't I wasn't looking to keep confirming proofs. No, I you were trying find, the contradiction. You were trying to. I find. was ho I was hoping to find one thing, one thing that I'd said that was wrong, and that way you say, well, this is not real memory. It's, there's something there's something goofy. Mm -hmm. So anyway, so I I went home and I wrote a letter to the National Academy of Design in New York City about it. And they said, well, naturally, don't loan the batteries out. They're too fragile. But there has been micro, they have been microfilmed, and I could get it on an interlibrary loan. So I went back to the library and made an interlibrary loan for the, for the, for the uh, diaries and his autobiography. Man. So anyway, about a week and a half later, they came. So I go down to the library to look at them. And unfortunately, Beckwith was a very avid diary keeper. He started his diary at age 19 and made an entry every day until the day. So that's a lot of material. 17,000 pages what? of diary. Yeah. Oh, my yeah, I found 17,000. And, you know, now, now what do you do? Okay, yeah, I got hey, you 17. You weren't kidding. There was enough no, material got, there. What? 17,000 pages. But I thought, well, okay, well, Bob, I'll read his autobiography. Maybe that'll tell me something. That would, you know, I could find something that wasn't true. Unfortunately, he started his biography in the spring of 1970, and he was sick. He died of endocarditis, which is an infection of the heart valves. And part of the symptoms of that is you felt very weak. So he, at the last of his life, he couldn't stand up to paint anymore. So he decided to become a writer. And he started writing. He started writing news magazine articles and various other things. And he also started his autobiography. Unfortunately, he only got he only got up to age 21 before he could have to stop before he died. So it wasn't much his autobiography was much value. Okay. But anyway, I found out. So I thought I thought I thought, I thought well, okay, Bob, what are you going to do? You got nine spools of microfilm, 17,000 pages. <laughs> So I thought what I'd do, I'll just go through and just, just glance at a few pages. And I found a part in this diary that for some reason he'd taken out about 20 pages and typed them. I have no idea. It's what it was he, he was an art student in France, and he went to Venice during his summer vacation. And so I was reading that. And, and, but it, again, all it did was confirm. He said that in, 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 in Venice he lived on wine and burned eggs. I thought, well, shit. There's <laughs> your wine so drinking. I, so anyway, it just got to the point, what am I going to do now? I thought, what am I going to do? So what I finally did is, of course, you could, the problem is the microphone, you're going to keep for two weeks and you have to send it back. There's no way you could go through 17,000 pages in two weeks or anything. I didn't know what to do, to tell you the truth. What I eventually, eventually ended up doing is I had hard copies made a diary, 17,000 pages. I was going to say, that's a lot of pages. Yes, it was. And I read every single page. It took me over a year, over a year to read it, but I read That's every incredible. single page. And what I, what I did though before, when I when I was actually when I before I ordered the uh, the diaries from New York, I I got my tape back out and I sat down and listened to it. And I found out I wrote down anything that could be proved or disproved about Becca said about life, about not okay. having children, about you know drinking wine. And I described myself, Doctor Griffith. I said I'm, I'm I'm dressed really nice. I have a a cane, but I said it's not really a cane. It's a fancy walking stick. It's a walking Phrase, stick. Things like that. Things I think you could prove or just something like a cross-reference kind of thing yeah, that you exactly. could. Yeah. And so, I so again, so I, I I sat down and I read every single page, and I, I, I had 28 things I could prove, and I eventually end up proving all 28 of them. Oh my God! Yeah, see, I mean, and to tell you the truth, for, as I kept as I kept doing it, there was never anything huge. Most of them are little small things. Like mm -hmm. I, I, in, in this diary, he said, I got the present day of a walking stick. He mentioned having a walk stick three or four times. And so so everything, was, everything was small. Robert, but, at what point in all of this did you start going from trying to disprove it? Because I know where you're coming from. You're like, I got to find the one thing that's going to let me off the hook with this entire thing. Exactly. 
When was it that you realized this is not going to happen and all of a sudden you're looking more for confirmation versus the disapproval? Well, the one thing I started being leaning that way, it didn't quite turn me, but kind of started leaving me, is I found out on uh, October 24th, 1988, I mean, excuse me, 1888, his wife, his name of the wife named Bertha, had a really very serious miscarriage. And because of this, they couldn't have children. Okay. And I said that. And, she, and he makes in his diary a number of times how much he regrets not having children, but that they couldn't. And that's, you know, that was things, you know, you think, eh, but not completely. What really turned me over was on December 5th, 1886, he writes in his diary. And I told you, that during the, at the very last regression, I said she died of a blood clot. The doctor said she died of a blood clot. And again, it was a woman, somebody, a woman so important to him, he wanted to cry. Okay. Well, I, I, in his diaries, I know there's two women that do that, either his wife, Bertha, who he loved dearly, or his mother. Okay. His mother was the only one who ever encouraged him to go into artwork. He always wanted to be his dad told him that's the best way to do a starving to death. Being artist. His dad tried. His dad was a wholesale grocer and wanted him to go into the wholesale grocery business. Uh-huh. Beckwith wanted to be an artist. Well, his mother bought him his first easel, his pay, his paintings. And she actually talked to father and let him go to New York and study painting in New York and in Paris. So I mean, he just loved his mother dearly. So it had to be, had to be either the only two women I could find in his life that he cared so much was about his mother and his wife. Well, in his diary, in December 5th, 1886, he writes that his mother's in church and had a stroke caused by a blood clot and died. Oh, wow. You know, that 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 was the one. That was probably what set me over the edge. And I thought, you know, come on. That what's, is... what's the odds you could imagine? What's the odds you could make this up? Exactly. And, and make, you can't. You, you know, the odds are too big. The significant woman and the cause of death. Yeah, both. I mean, there were only two women. It had to be either Bertha or his mother, mm-hmm. and, and, and his mother died of a blood clot. That's incredible. I mean, that did, and that did. I mean, the other, the rest of the points, like him drinking wine. Okay, that could happen. You know, mm-hmm. you can, you can, you can rationalize right. that out. You can rationalize that out. You can even rationalize the miscarriage, no children, maybe, but you couldn't rationalize this. There's no yes. way you could imagine this. No way you could make this up and be right. This is, I mean, you can't, and you're not going to be right. Twenty. I mean, you can guess some stuff about Beckwith's life. For example, I had saw him dying in the fall. I told you, when I went on the roof of the fall, well, he died in October. I saw he, he was in a large city where he died. Well, he died in New York City. Right. But all these things, I remember when I, when I found these things, I kept thinking, well, Bob, come on. A lot of people die in large cities, not just him. Right. You were uh, trying to think, yeah. yeah. And, of course, the people who die every year die in the fall. So, come yes. on. This doesn't prove anything. This is just, you know, this is just interesting. This is an interesting little thing. But when you got to the blood clots, like, come on. There's no way. This. There's no way you can make this up. Yes. You, I mean, and where would they, you think about it, where, where would that be recorded? Other than his diary, nowhere. No, of course. Yeah. So anyway, that was what pushed. Now, see, now, now I've got a real problem, though. You see, because okay, well, now that you realize it, what do you do with it? Now, and you're and, thinking, and you're starting to think that was me. Or... Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But what I mean, again, what I do with this information? So I, I basically talked to my wife about it. My wife, I told you, she was a uh, she's a police detective also. She was a child abuse detective. And we talked about it. First, she thought it was nuts. She really did. When I first told her about what I had found, she really thought I was nuts. She, and then, <laughs> but it basically, so we talked about it. And basically, she told me, said, Bob, you read about him. you seen a movie. I said, no, there are no books about him, no magazine articles, no movies. She said, yes, somewhere you've seen it. She said, I'll tell you what. I, said, I, will, I will look into this. I will, find, I will find where you saw the information about him. And actually, I was, kind of, I was hoping she'd say that. Mm-hmm. I was kind of glad because she's one of the best detectives I've ever met. Extremely thorough thorough detective, an excellent detective. She really is. And so I thought, great. Because, you know, 
one of my biggest admonishments to all my detectives when I was in charge of homicide is don't get emotionally involved in your cases. Right. When you get when you get emotionally involved in your cases, you get you get tunnel vision. You really mm-hmm. do. You you can't see things on the periphery because you're so obsessed with getting this case. Now here I was. I'm sorry, I'm sorry <laughs> yeah. I think about this. And I was really emotionally involved in this case. And so I wanted a unbiased third party to look at what everything I'd found, everything I'd done, to see if have I have I missed something? Have I got tunnel vision? So my wife said, I'll do it. So it took her several weeks, and she couldn't find anything. Anything she didn't find a single thing more than I had already found. Nothing. But regardless of that, she still told me, okay, Bob. She said, basically, said, okay, I, I can't find it. I don't know. Maybe something. This is amazing. But keep your mouth shut. Because you're a police captain. Police captains don't go espousing this sort of thing. Yeah, police captains I can don't see. go preaching past life. Keep your mouth shut. Take to the grave with you. Uh-huh. And, I, you know, and it's one of the things. And I thought, and I thought about it, and I thought about it, and I thought, oh God, you know. And the trouble was that so much of this information, like the like the hunchback woman, come to me just out of the blue. This wasn't the only right. time it happened. There are several other incidents. I didn't put them in the book because I. It sounded like you're you're driving the nail too hard, you know. You keep mm-hmm. putting all these things. In the book. But a couple other times, I had information about Beckwith dropped in my lap. For example, in his diary, a number of times he mentions I worked on my scrapbooks today, but. Him being so obscure, I could not find out where his scrapbooks were at. Okay. And so I, w- I was talking to an art dealer one time about Beckwith, and he and he would say, "Well, I have an expert in American art." He said, "If you want to talk to her, she might know something about him, type thing." So I talked to her, and her and I were talking about Beckwith, and just out of blue, she said, "You know, his scrapbooks are at a historical site in City, right?" I mean, I didn't ask her about it, nothing. It just come out of the blue. What? Yeah, yeah. I had instances like I have maybe a half dozen times where information about Beckwith we literally dropped in my lap. Talk about synchronicity. Yeah, yeah. So it's one of those things where I couldn't find him because it was this was a very important part of the investigation. I had his diaries. Now I didn't think his scrapbooks would tell me anything I hadn't already seen, but by the same token, you don't want a major piece of evidence out there laying out here without mm-hmm. you looking, without you looking at it. So I, but I could not find where they were at. There was no, you know, again, he was not famous person at all. And so there was no record. Unfortunately, I found him. So I went to New York City to the historical site and reviewed his scrapbooks. Basically, just more confirmed the things I'd seen in the regression. It's all, all related. And there was nothing in there that if they would say anything against anything I'd see. More, just more confirmation. But anyway, so I decided maybe my wife's right. You know, maybe she's right. Maybe I need to just keep this quiet and not say a word about it. So I decided just to file away and forget about it. Right after that, I was talking. So I, I was. I've been a writer my whole life. So I was going back. I was writing an article for magazines at this time. So I was writing an article about line of duty deaths for police officers. We just had a police officer killed just just a few weeks before that. So I interviewed a, a, a captain, a good friend of mine. She was the first person at the scene of the murder. Okay. The police captain. I asked her. I talked to her. We're we're talking about what happened. I'm taking notes for my article, and she's telling about this out of body experience she had at the murder scene. And she was standing there overlooking that, looking, realizing he was dead. And she said, suddenly I was floating above him. And I could see myself down there. You know, he said, I was trying, I was thinking, I was getting to see Barbara. Of course, it was, it was too late. He was dead. He'd been shot in the chest with a shotgun. And she said, but I could see myself. I'm floating him up. And that was, you know, that, that really startled me. because. So uh, she's no, telling you this and you must have yeah. been like, okay. I'm thinking. I, the thing is, I had never heard of police officers having paranoid experiences. Uh-huh. So I, I mean, I didn't know what to think about it, but I just wrote down. So uh, maybe maybe oh maybe two weeks after that, we're, I'm in federal court uh, testifying on a case. A couple of officers and I are over there talking. There's another captain there. He's going to testify with me, and we're just talking and everything. And he tells about an out of body experience he had. 
Oh, we was, are kidding. Well, there was a robbery. He said there was a robbery at a grocery store, and him and his partner were next door. Uh-huh. So they run over to the grocery store, and there's about five guys there with guns, and they start shooting at him. He gets in, they back out in the parking lot, and the guys are pulling out shooting. He said all of a sudden, he saw himself floating above the, the, the uh, parking lot, and he thought he said he thought he had died, and his soul was just looking. Right. Like, oh, he died. Yeah, well, he died. And again, this was two stories that nobody ever said anything. The, I had been in the police department probably 25 years by this time, and nobody had ever said anything about this. And so I started doing some discreet oh inquiries. Oh, my God. And I found, quite interesting enough, police officers have – I never had – but police officers at a group have a lot of paranormal experiences. Yeah, I think a lot of them do what you're – they keep quiet about. <laughs> yeah, they don't want to take people to think they're crazy. Mm-hmm. But interesting enough, I found almost most of these experiences happen under tremendous stress. Yes. Particularly out-of-body experiences. They happen out of stress. So yes. I, found, I found a number of cases around the police department of people – of police officers had paranormal experiences. And that's why I say, Bob, that's silly. You don't need to keep this yourself. Come on. These people have shared mm-hmm. them. Why don't you share it? And that's when that's why I basically decided to sit down and write the book. But you know, the problem, the, the only difference being, and my wife pointed this out many times to me, these guys are shared amongst police officers, and they know you're not going to tell anybody else. They don't. They didn't share this with the general public. Right. But you're going to be sure with the general public. But I don't. I don't know. So many things. Too many bizarre things, like the painting of the hunchback woman thing, happened that I thought I probably shouldn't. Keep, I don't think I meant to keep my mouth shut on this. And again, like I said, information kept getting dropped in my lap. And mm-hmm. interesting enough. Little bizarre coincidences happened during this whole time. I mean, each one in and of itself would just be a little bizarre coincidence, but you had a dozen. For example, uh, when I was, my book is getting ready, I had finished my, my book, and I didn't realize the art world is pretty small, and everybody knows what's going on in the art world. And I got a call from a lady. She worked at the Barry Hill Gallery in New York City. I said, I understand you're doing research on J. Carol Beckwith, uh, James Carroll Beckwith. I said, yeah, I've done some research on him. She didn't know what my book was going to be about, by the way. She just knew I'd write a book about him, not what it was, what it, what it was about. And she said, well, good. She says, I want to know, if, have you found any paintings in private collections? Because we're having, our art gallery is having an exhibition of his work. Uh, and interesting enough, the day the exhibition opened was the very same day my book was going to be published. What? They both brought at the same time. And I asked her at the moment, I says, why are you having an exhibition of Beckwith's work? It's never sold for any value. Most of paintings mostly go for four or five thousand dollars. I mean, most he ever gets it. Now, now occasionally you can find more, but most of his paintings go for four. They're not that good, four or five thousand. And I asked her, I said, why would you have an exhibition of Beckwith's work? He's never been famous. She said, I don't read. She said, it just seemed like a good idea. A couple, you know, they started. They'd been in planning for a couple of years, even though neither of us knew about each other. But interesting enough, I, I went to the exhibit in New York City when it happened. Oh, you did. I went and seen it. Yeah, they, you know how many paintings they sold in a month? They had sold for a month. They didn't sell a single painting. Not one. Yeah, they had this exhibition for a month. Didn't sell a single painting. It's not that, he's simply not that good. But all these things kept happening. You know, these little bizarre coincidences. That is like. <laughs> yeah, but and see, each one, Mike, each one in and of itself would be nothing right. but an interesting, interesting little coincidence. But they, when they add, they keep adding up. When you have, when you have a dozen or so of them, Exactly. It's like, no, no, exactly. There's no, there's something else happening, and that's basically why I decided to write the book. I finally decided, now, Bob, too many, too many things happening. I think this book is meant. This book is meant to be, or you wouldn't be given all this information. I mean, again, information simply dropped into my lap. And what happened? You said that during that year that you were writing, you had several experiences that just lasted throughout that one year. What? Yeah. What happened? Well, 
Well, another well, another thing, another interesting coincidence I had. Again, Beckwith in his diary says that he was born at nine in the morning while his okay. dad was out hunting with a friend. Okay. So anyway, while I'm writing this book, a friend a friend knew who I was writing it. and knew who I was writing about. Well, he knew a lady who was an astrologer. Now I don't believe in astrology. Believe me, I don't. I, of course, I get you know you, again. You have to prove this. You have to hit me. Hit the boot by for proof, or I'm accepting thing. But anyway, he and that, he told this lady who was an astrologer what I was doing. So she called me, and she said, "Well, you know what time Beck was born?" I said, "Yeah." His diary said he's born at nine in the morning, while his dad's out hunting with a friend. She said, "What time?" You said, "Okay, I got his day. September. He's born September 23rd, you know, 1852 at nine in the morning." Now, what time day were you born? She wanted to run astrological charts of us together. Yes. I thought, yeah. You know, I, I thought, oh man. But I bet this was a friend of a friend. So I said, oh, hey, it's like, I'll check and find out. So I got my birth certificate out, but it doesn't say what time you were born. Right. And, I, and so I started asking him, but the only one left at this time who was around then was my mother's sister, my aunt. Everybody else is dead and gone. They were uh. all gone. The only one left, again, was my aunt. And so I called my aunt and says, I, I said, do you know what time I was born? She said, yeah, you were born about 9 o'clock. Your dad's out hunting with your uncle. <gasps> Are you? Oh, no. no see, see, oh, no. no. Those little things again, again. That's, that's again. not a little I, thing. I, in and of itself, it's an interesting little coincidence. It's just an interesting little coincidence. But come on. What did and you I, do when you heard your aunt tell you that? I mean, I mean, say again, I'm not, I, after a while, I wasn't surprised anymore. You know, after a while, that's incredible. You're not surprised anymore. It's kind of creepy, to tell you the truth. It's kind of but that's incredible. You don't know where this is coming from. You know, you don't think where where is all this coming from? I don't know. The but truth it, is, there's no way you can were... manipulate that, I guess is my point. There's no way that you, considering you're, of course, you know what day you were born, but then you find out what time, that it coincides with his day. Yeah, that's, come on, it's in the circumstances. Yeah, but it's, it's all, it's, but the interesting part is a lot of these, oh, God, so I believe had at least a dozen coincidences like this, or probably more happened <sighs> during a time. But once the book is published, that's, they stopped. I haven't had a, I haven't had a single thing happen since. Nothing. Wow. It's kind of like, okay, you're done. You know, it's, there's no point to them anymore, is there? I think these are all pointing to me that maybe the book needs to be written. You know, uh -huh. I just keep pointing me toward writing the book. But after, like I said, after the book is written, since then, not a single thing, nothing has happened at all. Wow. And I think, like I said, the door, the door was shut, apparently. I think I, I had done my part. My part was to investigate. Because this, this investigation took me over a year, like I said, a, a very, you know, to do all, to do all these things, to find, to get the... And, and I had to use my police officer's skills because, as a matter of fact, I was reading a, a uh, there's a book called Who Was Who in American uh, Painting. Okay. And it said, and I pulled it up about back within, had a little bit of it, he said he died of a suicide. And I thought, no, I didn't see this or anything, and I didn't see this in my progression. So I called New York City. I uh. called the medical examiner in New York City and told him who was this Captain Bob Snow, had a homicide in that police department. I said, I want you to check something for me. Now, you know, the ordinary person, they wouldn't have done this. Oh, before. of course not. <laughs> I, and I, told him, I said, I have a guy, he died, I wonder what he died of. And so he, he didn't even, you know, the funny thing, you think he'd ask, want to know why it was 1917. But I, I guess in my position, he didn't say, no problem. So he, he called me back the, the next day and said he died of endocarditis. It wasn't a suicide. It was just a typo or mistake in the book. Wow. Yeah, he died of endocarditis. And he actually, he actually sent me, I'll tell you, he mailed me a copy of his death certificate so I could see it. And that's, by the way, another interesting part of this story. That's how I knew a Beckwith was buried. Because they had a, on the death ticket, said he's buried in Kensico Cemetery, which is in New York. It's in, it's in Valhalla, New York, which is a suburb of uh, New York City. Okay. So, so while I was in New York City doing research for this book, I, I tried to find the places Beckwith had been, where he'd lived and all this. But 
everything had changed since 1970. Mm-hmm. There were mm-hmm. none of the buildings were left. Nothing was there anymore, type thing. But anyway, I knew that he was buried in Kensico, which is just north of New York City. And I thought, at the, when I was there, wouldn't it be cool to visit your own grave? Would that be, <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, how many? Come on. How many absolutely, were, like, absolutely. So, but you know, at the same time, it was kind of creepy too. Kind of, <laughs> you really want to go there, type thing. So anyway, the last day, I caught a uh, train and went up to Valhalla, New York, where Kensico Cemetery is, and. I decided well, I'd go visit the grave. So, but Kensico Cemetery, by the way, it's a beautiful, beautiful cemetery. Huge, but it's a huge cemetery. Okay. And so I finally found. I went to the office and laid through the map where it was, and so I started going to the grave. And when I got within maybe ten of the grave, I had this terrible, terrible anxiety attack. Really? Now, yeah, terrible. My, I could feel my heart. You could feel your heart pushing against your rib cage. It beat so hard. Wow. And and I could, and I would, you know, I, and the funny thing, when I was first got a police officer. There's a lot, you run a lot of scary situations. And I had this, when I, this problem when I first come to police I'd get really in a scary situation. My left knee would start shaking. <laughs> it, it, it was just, an, I don't know what it was, but because police, police officers going to lie, because especially when you first start out, because you don't have enough experience to know what to do type thing. Mm-hmm. So you're kind of scared. And I'm, I'm, I'm getting, I walk up to Becca's grave and I, my heart is beating. I'm sweating like crazy. My left knee is wow. shaking. And I had no idea why. I mean, come on. I kept trying to reach myself, Bob, there's nothing here. There couldn't even be in ghosts because you're that if there's any soul that's in you, so right. there's nothing but that body. I could not stop the anxiety attack until I walked away. When I walked away from the grave, it stopped. But then I but I wanted to get a picture of myself at the grave. Okay. Just to prove it, but to prove I wasn't scared. There <laughs> <laughs> was a man doing there was some a couple guys doing maintenance close by and I asked him, Would you take a picture of me at the gravesite? And so so when I walked back, the minute I walked back, the anxiety attack came back. And I mean, I would, it was just awful. I got my heart being so hard. I've been worried about maybe having a heart attack there. And I was just sweating and my knee was shaking. But I, and I waited, I let this guy take a picture of me. I didn't, God, I didn't take a holiday. You're never going to get it done. But then once I, once I left the grave, it stopped. Now, I don't have a clue what that means. Okay. I don't have a clue. Why, why would I have that? I don't, people have asked me, well, you know, why? I don't have a clue. Okay. I really don't have a clue why that would happen. But I had this terrible, terrible anxiety attack. When I get close, every time I get close to the grave. Now, wow. somebody, maybe somebody who's who had experience in these sort of things to explain it. I have no idea why. Okay. And you were because I was about to say you must have. So once you got there, once you actually saw it, then that's it. It subsided. Once I left, no, once I left the gravesite, once I left, got about ten or fifteen feet away from the gravesite, it went away. So when I, you were there, though, when you looked at it, when you I were still under, grave, you were anxious. Terrible, terrible anxiety. But like I said, I walked over to ask the, the maintenance man to take a picture. It was gone. But then I went back and stood next to the grave. So he could picture me next to the grave, and then it came back. Wow. Now, again, I'm not, I don't have any experience in this field, so I can't explain what that meant. But it, it, I, just, it, I don't know if you're not, I guess you're not supposed to do that for some reason. I don't it's know. Well, it's, let's face it. Think about it. You had gathered all these things that you couldn't discount as being coincidence. And it, I had to have some type of feeling of being surreal. Think about it. Yeah, but, but why, why anxiety? I don't know why. Because it was like it was like, like like I used to be when you were the first police officer, and you go you're going to you got to go into a warehouse hunting for a burglar, a dark warehouse. You're kind of scared. It's kind of nervous. Well, the same with this. You had this terrible anxiety of, of just you know your your heart's palpitating, you're sweating, and your knees shaking, and you're trying to figure out why. What could so be it's... here? What could be here? Be scary. There's just a. I mean, there couldn't be any. You know, your the soul. His soul is in your body, and right. so there's not. There's nothing left there. There couldn't even be a ghost left there because everything's in your body. I am. I don't. I couldn't explain it. I just know why I was there. 
within I get when I ever approach the grave, I get a terrible anxiety attack. So, so I, that was just an interesting, another interesting aspect of the book. Right. I don't understand why. Yeah, you couldn't logic it away. You I, had. I, to... couldn't figure, I couldn't figure a logical reason for it. I just knew that it happened. Now, that... as you might as you might imagine, this didn't go well at the police department. When the book oh. came out, it did not go well. Oh, it didn't. No, no. Police, police work is a very old school profession. Police work, police officers are very conservative, old school people. Mm-hmm. And and as my wife predicted, police captains don't go around espousing. <laughs> they, they just don't. It did not go well. No, it didn't. Oh boy. So what happened? They what? They were uh, basically, basically they they. I was I was in charge of homicide. When I took over homicide, we'd had the most murders in history. History of police department the year before. They put me there. I was there for six years. Every year I was there, the murders went down. Okay. So the rate went up, the murders went down. The matter of fact, the year, last year, the last year there, after the book came out, they asked the murders at the lowest point in 20 years. Mm-hmm. And they basically transferred me out of homicide because of the book. Even though wow. the murders were the lowest rate, and we had an 83% clearance rate. They, matter of fact, they, said they put me into a job where they put people who were getting ready to retire. Yeah. yeah, it's I like, know, right, you had been yeah. around long enough to figure it out, like, okay, I know I'm here. That was the message I was supposed to get. Uh-huh. Yeah, that was a message I was supposed to get. But anyway, so I basically, basically my career in the police department ended right there. It really did. It, it pretty well went to an end there. Just my wife had predicted it would. It pretty it pretty well hit, hit went off the cliff. <laughs> but, you know, again, I, people ask me if I regret about it. I really don't have regrets about it. I don't. I, I, I feel like this had to be done. This was a it sounds this was like a, it. a story that had to be told. There was too much information given to me, too many strange things happened that come that I can't explain for me not to tell this story. And so, do I? You know, do I, you know people ask me if I regret. I don't regret telling. You no, know, it, it was just what happened. To the police department was just some bad consequences of it. And right. actually, it, actually, it kind of hurt my writing career too. Really? Until, yeah, oh, yeah. Because I've been, I wrote mostly police procedural books about SWAT teams, self-protection. Right, yeah. I uh, saw you have one about cults and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. See, I had written a lot of books up this time. But I think once the book came out, the publishers didn't want to take me serious any longer as a writer of police procedural books. And <laughs> it was five years after the book came out before I get enough, I get another contract. Really? Yeah. Because simply nobody would take me seriously long as a writer, as a police writer. But that again, is incredible. But, but again, you know what? I, I see where I, I, yeah. I mean, you can understand the, the publisher's point of view. Yeah, how, where, where's this person's credibility? Look what he's writing about now. Yeah, it's like, that's so out there. <laughs> so, you know, but again, do I regret that? No. It's just, I guess, one of the consequences you have to bear. If you do something like this, you have to be ready to get ready to accept the consequences when they happen. Mm-hmm. And that's what, I, that's what I did. I knew, and I, I like my wife, she didn't have to tell me, I knew what could happen. But I could not let this stuff be kept. I couldn't right. keep this stuff hidden. I really couldn't. It was just too much stuff was given to me, too important. I thought yes, to keep it the, and not tell about it. And so like, I don't. I don't really regret it. Not really. But think about it. That moment when she regressed you, that she's telling you to go in the light, but you stop and you look through that window and you see the portrait of the hunchback woman. That was the one thing, almost like you said, I need to see this in order to be able to follow back and find came after that because that was your reference point in other words you didn't have a name at that point well, actually, uh, no actually the the window i saw the uh, it was a still life and i never did find out by the way no they, uh, the, the, no i never no i saw when i looked through the window of the, the mansion it was a still life okay i'm but sorry I, I thought it, it was the yeah, hunchback lady no no the hunchback woman i saw in the in the studio while i was painting it 
but oh okay 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 yeah i never did never did find that of course there's too many still lifes around and what what happened a lot of beckwith paintings have been bought by artists and they took for the canvas and the frame they painted over the painting and put theirs on top of it oh because he spent he spent a lot of money on frames he liked to frame his paintings very well so i think a lot of his paintings were sold for the frame and the canvas mm-hmm. and you just you basically you basically paint over and put another painting on top of it so who knows how many hidden back with paintings are? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or I mean, been destroyed just for the for the frame. But again, again, his stuff is not that good. It's not worth a lot of money. It's not that good. But that is so interesting because see, that's the thing, you know. And that's I guess where you were in luck because even though he wasn't like I know what you were saying, famous, but at least there was some type of documentation. It, most importantly, his own uh, diary. Like you said, he was so meticulous about that. Like I said, like, fortunately, like I said, he wasn't anybody famous, but he kept his diaries simply because he was a kind of like a social butterfly during his time, and he knew everyone. He was good friends with Mark Twain. He was good friends with Theodore Roosevelt. He was good friends with Claude Monet, the painter. He knew wow. Sarah Bernhardt. Uh, Sarah Bernhardt. He knew Oscar Wilde. Oscar Wilde, matter of fact, they were such good friends. Oscar Wilde stayed in his apartment when he wow. came to America. I mean, Beckwith knew everyone. Beckwith knew everyone who was famous during the late 1800s, early 1900s. And his diaries contain little little anecdotes about these people. Now, let me ask you something, Robert. How did you get into writing, considering that you were a policeman? How did how did you start doing that? I never wanted to be a policeman. I never, that thought never occurred to me growing up. The only thing I've ever wanted to be since my earliest memories as a writer. Oh, my God. You're kidding. When I was a really? Boy, people would ask me, you know, I was four or five, what do you want to be when you grow up? I would say, uh-huh. right. You know how people, they pat you on the head. That's like saying I want to be president. Yeah. You know, everybody pat you on the head and say, yeah, that's nice. That's nice. <laughs> I, I never really had any desire ever to be a police officer. I just kind of fell into my accident. I was in the military during the Vietnam War. Okay. After I was discharged, I got out, and I needed a job. I mean, being a writer is nice, but anybody, who, anybody who's tried writing knows you never make much money at first. You don't You don't mm-hmm. make enough to live on. You don't certainly don't make enough to live on. So you have to have another job. Exactly. And my brother was a police officer at this time. He had been on the police department for about a year. And he said, Bob, come on down. He said, because this is the Vietnam War was still going on. I got out in 1968. Okay. It went on until 72. So mm-hmm. there was no mail. There weren't that many right. healthy, healthy males available. So they they were looking so for bodies. Me being an Army discharge veteran, they were looking yeah. for me. You know, So I got down there, and I was taken on immediately. Mm-hmm. And I, I, didn't mean, I really didn't mean to stay there that long. I meant to just stay long enough to get some money together to, to, take, to kind of tide me over during my writing career. But police work is kind of like heroin. You take the first dose of it, you're stuck for life. You wow. really are. Police work is very addictive. It, it's so. It's police officers are most of them are adrenaline junkies. They are adrenaline junkies. You just you love the surge you get from the adrenaline of this, doing police. Work. Well, well, but you even took that experience and all that knowledge, and this exactly. is what you wrote about. Exactly, and also I realized it didn't take me long to realize. Not only did I love police work because of the excitement, and and you're doing good. You're doing something good for the community and the excitement. I also realized, gee. I got this. Is gonna give me all kind of material. To write <laughs> Great material. Every every one of my books, I have 18 books in print. Every mm-hmm. one's about police work. All my I have over 100 articles and short stories published. They're all okay. about police work. Yeah, it's the only thing I know. So you you, you publish what you know, and so that, I, it was a good thing to be able to be in the police work because not only did it you know, give me a good paying job, steady job, mm-hmm. but it, all, it also gave me a whole lot of subject material. I a bet. Whole lot of subject material. I bet. Yeah, you. It's like I can see because I I was looking at the titles of some of your books and I see what you mean as far as them, the the book about the reincarnation being totally diametrically opposed yeah. to the subject matter. 
I almost said my, mostly my last few books have all been my last three books have been true crime simply okay. because after a while I my robot SWAT teams assess crime investigation finding mm-hmm. missing persons after a while you run out of interesting subjects about police work you really do there's right. so many so many so many areas of police work the public wants to read about nobody so after a while I started ran out so I started writing true crime my last three books have been about true crimes okay and I again. It's, it's police work. It's, it's, it's cases I've been involved in, right. either peripherally or, or in some way, and so I write about them. Well, you have that insider's view that even somebody exactly. is never going to get. Yeah, they could interview a million people, but still, it's, you can't. It doesn't replace somebody that's actually been doing it for as long as you did it. And it doesn't, it doesn't replace you being at the scene of that. You actually yes. being at the scene at the scene of a, of a murder or yes. a crime. You can tell little details that no one's going to get but you. So it worked out. Actually, being in police work, I know I fell into by accident, turned out to be very fortuitous because it really did give me some great subject matter to write about. And doing, and being said, investigating Beckworth was a very difficult job. You had to have someone who has investigative skills to know where to look for these things, where to look and what to do to investigate. And I, and I half, half, halfway think it's part of my life. That's why, that's why kind of why I was picked. To do this job, mm-hmm. I kind of feel like I, I kind of feel like I was picked to do this, there you and go. I kind of feel like probably the reason why because I had experience as an investigator. And, yeah, and, I, and in other words, yes, I understand completely. You had that investigative, like, okay, where do I go with this, or how do I follow back? Like what you said, even when you started, that you started taking notes as far as let me when you were going through those books in the libraries trying to find out who this person was. So, yeah, you had investigative techniques that you used. Exactly. Yes. That, you know, and, and, and I, one of the things I think that's also interesting is that you went through the transition as far as crime and investigation from pre-DNA to now that everything is DNA, you know, that whole forensic thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so I imagine that as far as uh, crime investigation and homicides and things have changed quite a lot. Uh, yeah. uh, DNA probably, since uh, probably the greatest uh, Thing, thing, new thing in police work says fingerprints, mm-hmm. because you cannot commit a personal crime on someone without leaving DNA. Yeah, you simply can't. You can't. Believe me, you can't be a rapist. Even though rapists a lot of times want to wear a condom, it doesn't stop DNA being left behind. Mm-hmm. You really, DNA is, is is a great, great tool for police officers. It's, like, it's the greatest invention, probably since fingerprints for identifying suspects, because we have a lot of cold cases. Where there was DNA material, right? Case, yeah, I've the time, seen the, the that. Time that the, the that... time the case happened, there was no DNA. So basically, we don't ever. If you have a murder, you never throw the evidence away ever. The case right. is not solved. You never throw the evidence away. So DNA can be used in stored for 20, 30, 40 years. Can still be used because there have been a number of cases where people have found DNA from 30, 40 year old cases and be able to type it and 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 point pinpoint a certain person as the as the culprit. Right, right. That's what I've seen. That years afterwards, they've made a match. Yes. Uh, to either some the persons in jail or sometimes even de- you know, but they've actually been able to match the DNA. And right. I'm thinking also for prosecution, that's pretty irrefutable. Like, yeah, how do you get around that? You know. Yeah, it's a little hard if you have a rape victim with your DNA on her. Mm-hmm. You're saying I wasn't there. That's it, it, not going to fly. Exactly. It's, it's not it, going to fly. Well, it's it's one of those things where it's good, and also, you know, a lot of people say, "Look, it it can exonerate a lot of people as well." Like if you said it wasn't there and your DNA doesn't match, guess what? Anybody knows anything about the Project Innocence? That's what they do. Right. They have exonerated over two thousand people. Yeah. Who were convicted, convicted, 
mostly are mostly sex crimes. Mm-hmm. People don't mm-hmm. realize that when a, per- a person the victim of sex crime, you're you're just so traumatized, you really don't, you really can't identify the person. Right. But but they place a guy under arrest. They say the police are convinced this is him, and now you're convinced. But it's not yes, really so. Exactly. Believe me, I believe me. Eyewitness testimony is not that reliable. Eyewitness testimony is not nearly as reliable as physical evidence. No, well, you, that's you, what I'm you, thinking. You, Something like this is like this is not subject to memory or interpretation or lighting you know, or yeah, whatever. It's hard evidence. Yeah, because I've had times where you interview three different people who witness the exact same thing, and you get three different stories. It's like. Yeah. This is the same incident, and people are telling three different stories from three different viewpoints who, who actually witnessed the same incident. So uh, DNA, I mean, eyewitness testimony is nice, but physical evidence is much better. And I'm even thinking, it, it, even even you don't think about exoneration post-conviction. You know, I'm thinking even at the investigative oh. level. Okay. Oh, yeah, that'll happen. That, that happens a lot of times in police work. Yeah. It's like, yeah. hey, your your DNA doesn't match. That's your it. Head, you're right, not. Your head right for this person. Then you're right. He's like, Okay, time to pull back, start looking the other way. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Not just the, not the DNA, but a lot of other, sometimes you just got, you start off with this preconceived idea, you know who the, who the culprit is, but the evidence mm-hmm. is not prove that. It's kind of like I did with Beckwith. I start off knowing I can prove this wrong. I can prove this wrong. Right. And I kept going and going. The evidence turned me 180 degrees back the other way. Yeah. You right. realize, nope, this is not the way this investigation is going to go. It's going to go the other way. Right, exactly. But, you know, yeah. at least you were open-minded to follow it back through even well, when you weren't getting what you were looking yeah. for. Come on, after a while, you, get, you mean, no matter how convinced you were of something, if all the evidence points in that direction, you've got to say, wait a minute, I'm wrong. This is not what happened. This is what happened. You have to look at what, where's the evidence point? All right, the evidence didn't point where you thought it was going to point. It points the opposite direction. And that happens a lot of times in criminal cases. You just know subject A is the person. And boy, the evidence points to subject B. And you're the person you, who you at least suspected. And, yes. You know. Well, that's exactly what I mean as far as when, you, you know, as far as the investigative. And the same thing. Okay, this is definitely not the person. So there's somebody else out there that that's right. should that's be right. the suspect. Got, yep. Even the most like, the least likely, in other words. Yep, quite often. Let me ask you, Robert, after this, and now obviously you're, you're not uh, – you're not a police officer as far as active. You're, you know, no, you don't, you're not going to be put in the, have you ever considered doing any more regressions or anything else with a reincarnation? Well, no, because, only because my point being, if I went back to do another Beckwith one, what would be the point? There, I read every day of his life from 19 to 65. So how would I know anything I saw was really true or was a, point, a part of the, the diaries I read? I mean, I read every diary of his diaries and that is his little small autobiography so my point is you really couldn't be sure anything you saw about him would be true well and no that, i'm not even talking about beckwith oh, because am, if you I, go I, through I, right I, incarnation I, you were you obviously you were somebody else besides beckwith before yeah but the most but there were all these things were super history you can't prove them i know is, that's the thing it's and difficult my point is you always you if you can't prove them to me there's no point if you can't prove it you really don't know, but you really can't prove it's not imagination. I mean, I, saw, yeah. I told you I went back to Dr. Griffith the second time. I saw myself as a as a monk. I saw myself as a Chinese warrior. But they were all way far back in history. So right, there's no way to There's no reference validate. point, so how do yes. you know they're really true? Yes. You don't. 
I, I would, I would, I, until my point about any regression, and I, any regression I did back with again would really be pointless, just because I know about everything. That I've, the thing about a diary is I went through every day of his life yeah. from 19 to 65. Yeah. So I, anything I, anything I came up with, how do you, it's, it's been, let me say it's been tainted by now, because I know too much about him. For example, I've talked to a number of people about census type about regression, mm-hmm. and a person said they were regressed to some famous person, but you find out. They've always been obsessed by this person. Right, They've yes, read, exactly. Every book there is about this person. Exactly. Now, you, you, I suppose you could use the opposite argument that read, they were obsessed by him, read about him because it was them. But by the same token, every, anything they say about the person is tainted because they, they, they know this person. They've read every book about this person, everything there is written about this person. So now they do regress and say they are this person. How do you prove that? I mean, Well, exactly. And that's the thing that, like, for example, one time I regressed this lady. She was... She was a friend of a friend, you know, one of those things. And she asked me, she was one of these people that she was fascinated with, like that antebellum, gone with the wind kind of thing, you know, like, oh, I'm sure I lived during that time and the hoop skirts and the whole nine yards. And I said, okay. I said, you know, well, let's see, let's take it. And, you know, I regressed her. As a matter of fact, I regressed her over at her house on her sofa. And, uh, but of course, no suggestions, you know, nothing. It was like, you know, I took her back and, and I said, what do you see? And then, you know. Turns out <laughs> she saw herself as a Greek fisherman, as a man. Oh. And uh, she says, she says, she the, the opening scene, she was like, you could tell she saw herself um, mending a net. And um, and later on, you know, she, she, like you said, she could smell the sea. She could smell the, the, the sea, the salt, the sea salt. Like at one point she said she could even hear the gulls, the seagulls. Um you know, we went through the hole, and then I, at the end, I took her. And this was, he was like, when I say fisherman, it was like one of these, like, one of these boats where you maybe you could fit four people in it, and you, mm-hmm. you know, you cast your nets out, and then you come back. And at the end, she, I took her to the, the point of her death, and or his death, or whatever. And, you know, he drowned. He got caught in a storm out in sea, and he, and, uh, but he stayed, and because he was like the captain, this was his boat kind of deal. And when she came out of it, she was, she was totally speechless. She says, I've never have no affinity, no interest, nothing having to do with Greek or Greek fishermen or anything. And what convinced her was how vivid it was. In other words, it didn't fulfill any of the expectations that she had as to what she thought she was going to see or experience or go back to. Well, I felt the same way. I didn't see myself as a caveman, an artist, or an order girl. Those right, three, exactly. If I'd, had to, if I'd had to pick what I thought past lives were, none of them three would have been even the, the top hundred. So right. I, I, you're, you're, I think everybody who would do this is real, it's quite often stunned by what they find because it's not what they picture themselves as. No, no. And I asked her, I said at the end, um, I said, what was your regret? One of the regrets she had was that because her well his adult son her adult son was on the sh- on the boat and drowned as well and it was one of those where like in other words he didn't care about losing his life his biggest regret was that he couldn't save his son it was they were just caught out at sea in a bad storm um and you know but so when you were describing that moment where you were smelling and seeing things and everything I, I knew exactly what you were talking about as far as when you go from sometimes even observing to going into being, like you said, you were talking in first person. 
And uh, yeah, that's what. I, but yeah, it's very unexpected. Some people have these ideas of what they're going to see or what they're going to experience just because they like whatever. And a lot of times, like what you said, it's it's romanticized where somewhere along the line you took that information and you became fascinated with it. But that's it. That's it. But again, I, I, again, I'm always, you know, I, I, I also find I'm always suspicious of people who want to claim they are famous people. Now, oh, yeah. Obviously, if you're somebody famous, there's going to be a reincarnation of you. But what's the odds that everybody you talk to was somebody famous? Because for None. everybody famous, there's at least 10 million people who are not famous, who are, who are not simply nobodies. And that's yeah, always, exactly. always concerned me when people want to be famous. I'm always a little suspicious of that. Always a little bit suspicious. I mean, yes. I'm, sure, I'm sure that George Washington has, has to have reincarnation somewhere. But the odds of people being it are pretty slim. I'll tell you what. One thing I've discovered, Robert, throughout the years is most people, what they fear the most is being ordinary. And yeah. if you're ordinary in this life, at least I don't want to be ordinary in my past. You want to be a, a super you want to be a super In my past life, yeah. so. Yes, I, I, unfortunately, it's like, and I mean, as somebody that's done, I, I mean, I consider myself a subconscious behaviorist. I, I, I work a lot with as far as our subconscious dictates what we do and et cetera. Um, unfortunately, that fear of being ordinary, most of the happiest people are ordinary people. Exactly. people. And again, for every famous person or every extraordinary person, you've got to have millions and millions of ordinary people to carry the world along. Yes. While, they, while, they, while people are doing these things they do to make them great, people have got, got to plant the crops, got to, got to yes. take the crops to market, you got to milk the cows, you got to work in the factory, you got, somebody's got to build the cars in the factories. Yeah. So there's going to be a lot of ordinary people. And along with it, they'll to support the extraordinary people. Yes, exactly. But, and I mean, and there's nothing wrong, don't get me wrong, with fame or whatever it is, whatever it is that you, but a lot of people equate being ordinary with being like unhappy. And I'm like, nah, you know, nah. that uh, sometimes very ordinary people live pretty happy lives considering, you know, the human condition. But, you know, that's, that it is what it is. But. Anyway, Robert, thank you so, so much for spending this time. It has been wonderful. I loved your story. And believe me, uh, I can truly appreciate what you were describing. Um, And uh, are you you working on any books right now? Yeah, yeah. I'm writing writing true crime now. So that's what I'm doing. I'm working on another true crime. Can you, can you, can you talk about what, what, not yet. I don't like to talk about books. Okay. Okay. I find if you talk too much about your books where you're working on them, you lose your enthusiasm. Okay. Well, anyway, I'm going to have a link to your to your uh, website here on the on the credits of the show. So if anybody right. wants to go and visit your site as far as for the books, and I believe your all your books are also available on Amazon, right? They're available on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, all the place. Yeah, they're all over all, the place. All okay. over the place. Yeah. So anyway, would you also send me an email? Let me know when this is going. Absolutely. Be on. Yes. Absolutely. Right. I will send that to you. But again, thank you so very much. It has been wonderful. Thank you for having I- me on. Likewise, have a great weekend, okay? You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Wow. Something to really wrap your head around that one. See? See? You know. Here's this one. Talk about the least likely person that was ever going to believe in reincarnation or none of that. And he has written a book about it, folks. And you saw the slides there. I think, you know, and I say it again, this is, I mean, I'm very familiar with regression, with reincarnation. And, you know, if you want to use it as a tool for addressing different issues. 
and um, I was I I could <laughs> I was I wouldn't want to bust out laughing, but when he was like being so resistant at the end when she's trying to bring him down and he's like not wanting to see and um, you know that that's all based on your suggestibility. Everybody's different, uh, but I, I I was I was like I could I could see that his personality uh, would be very resistant to. Uh, being regressed even though people are hypnotized and they don't realize they're hypnotized but he was taking his cues uh, and I have I have uh, I have tried uh, I've worked with police officers and one time I was uh, trying to I was, was you know I'm gonna it wasn't and as a matter of fact it wasn't for regression it was just I was gonna let me hypnotize you so you'll see what it's like and because I do that sometimes with people that I've never been hypnotized before just so they can experience it so that they can see you don't fall asleep. You don't forget it. Nobody takes over you remembering you just really relax, but you're aware, totally a hundred percent aware of what's going on. And I say, man, I like this. I'm going to go get my gun. And I go, your gun. It's like, where are you going? Where do you think you're going? <laughs> it's like, all I'm going to do is relax you. But my point being that depending on your personality, everybody's different, but there's a lot of fear and resistance and like, like, what what do you think I'm gonna do? Like transport you to another dimension? I, I can't do that. <laughs> so that's why when he was saying how she had to try really hard, you know, once she got past the induction and she's trying to get him to see, also because of his again his suggestibility that he has a he has to he can't visualize he has to imagine things and he kept using that word. But anyway, guys, um, I thought it was fascinating. I really thought it was fascinating because um, I have seen many times what he described happen to clients. Luckily, he was able uh, that which cut those were extraordinary circumstances. I'm telling you, to basically have a way of going back and and I have to give credit where credit is due. That information maybe having gone to a person who did not have his tenacity and his investigative skills they wouldn't have known what to do with it or they wouldn't have gone through all the things that he went through yes there were things like when he went to New Orleans that he saw absolutely but that tenacity of going back remember like he said this was prior to internet this is when you had to do the legwork library going back through every book searching 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 not everybody was going to do that. As a matter of fact, the book of people would never. So, again, the but again, he had somebody that there was something, maybe not a lot, but there was something. And, of course, that he was a diary keeper, like, yay, helped him uh, verify, validate things that he had seen or felt like he said when he was under regression. So it was almost like... I wanted I want to say for lack of a better word it was almost like a pact a soul pact that he had uh I mean it could it could be interpreted a million ways like he said um he was always like a a, a painter but not really a great painter but at the end of his life he was writing and who knows maybe at the end when he started writing he had maybe come upon the realization hey I could be a great writer but here you go. You get cut off at the pass because you're ill and you die. So it was almost like, you know, think about it. Here you are. You go off. You become a painter. 
you're rubbing elbows with all these outstanding artists of different things, whether they're painters or art or actors or um, whatever, writers. And you're going along and you're a painter, but... Mm, and then all of a sudden at the end, you kind of realize, wait, I'm a little bit off here. What I really like is to write. Think about it. This man has been writing his diary for how many years? What, 40 or something years? I mean, meticulous, which is not the same as fiction writing, but still, it's almost like here he had it under his nose and he didn't go forward with it, or maybe it was just economics. Let's face it, you've gone, you've trained in New York and Paris to become a painter, and this is where you're making some type of money where all of a sudden to switch gears, but, or maybe not. Like I said, maybe at the end when he's uh, really ill and and he starts writing, he realizes, oh my God, this, this, is what, this is what I was meant to do. I'm a writer, not a painter. And then you die. Or you become so ill that you can't go any further with it. So, think about it. What's his, in his next incarnation? He gets a job. Like he said, he had always wanted to be a writer all along. Like this is like, and he almost like falls into a job that number one guaranteed him income. Okay. Plus gave him a lot, a big source for writing. Okay. And it was almost like I can fulfill that, that, that wish that I had that of making the right choice but maybe on a soul level he realized for me to really to um, to fulfill this I need to be able to do something that where I can make a living for myself and my family and it was like I'm telling you I, I thought that, that's so fascinating that thing of the birth and his come on if he, that's incredible that is incredible but anyway guys uh, check out his uh his website robertlsnow.com i believe it is anyway i i'll have it on the i'm gonna have it on the um on the credits of the show and of course robert l snow you can go to amazon and you can find all his uh books i i, I wish i mean obviously i was i really wanted to talk to him about the reincarnation but if you saw that slide that he put on there he you know he's got all these non-fiction uh police books about that one about the cults and now that he's working on these for true crime uh and like he said he's been and he's written for a lot of magazine he's written for playboy esquire he's not only has books he's written articles fascinating fascinating interview so again guys thank you so much for being part of my audience uh uh my true believers go to miamighostchronicles.com submit your story there at the tab uh, follow me on Facebook and on Twitter. That's where I uh, live stream. Don't forget to get, uh, w- whether you're looking at it on YouTube or you're listening to the podcast, subscribe so that you get notifications of the um, of when I release a new show. And again, uh, thank you so very much for being part of my audience. You are all wonderful. Take care. <laughs>